We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Last week, we looked at the tangled mess that was Missouri from 1861 to 1865, a state with more guerrilla violence, a state that spawned Jesse James, a state different from other states of the Confederacy. But why was it that way? Our guest this week has an answer to that question. He's written the most original book about the Civil War in the last several years. Its title, Financial Fraud and Guerrilla Violence in Missouri's Civil War, 1861-1865, and his name is Mark W. Geiger. Join us for a new look at the roots of Missouri's guerrilla war today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Follow the World Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at World Talk Radio. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the World Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash World Talk Radio or follow along with us at World Talk Radio, the World Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a bright, clear spring day in March 2011 from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, talking to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building. But despite my use of taxpayer-funded equipment not speaking on behalf of the university or any other entity, I know my guest will likewise speak only for himself. Well, it is uh, the last Friday before spring break. Campus is gradually, uh, uh, rapidly, I should say, uh, becoming deserted. The uh, freshman uh, history survey this morning had about 50% attendance out of 90 students. So we uh, did something interesting off the syllabus to reward those who bothered to show up. 
but the upper level civil war class, they were mostly there today. They're the good students. Uh, and we talked uh, a little bit about today's book, a little bit about some other uh, books that have been discussed in the last few weeks. There's been some very in- interesting and original scholarship coming down the pike lately on Civil War topics, something that bodes well for the flood of 150th anniversary literature that we're going to encounter. Uh, there will be no live show next week uh, because of spring break. I'll actually be probably in here uh dealing with the budget or something amusing like that. But in my mind, I will be lying on a beach uh, imagining that I am uh, somewhere with with, uh, uh, the students of, I guess it would be 40 years ago now, uh, doing that sort of thing over spring break. Uh, Won't be doing it in real life. But we'll be back. We have good shows lined up. Uh, March 18th, uh, Scott Mingus will talk to us about the Battle of Gettysburg, of which we know we can never have enough. Uh, Stephen Boyd, the following week, a topic uh, you probably haven't thought much about, and I'm not kidding when I say it's about envelopes of the Civil War era. Uh, It will be, as uh, I assure you, as the show on identity tags and discs was uh, a year or two ago, much more interesting than than I imagined it was going to be, and and this one I think is going to be the same. uh, Joe Fulton will be with us on appropriately on April Fool's Day to talk about Mark Twain and his Civil War experience. And the following week, we've got Judkin Browning with a brand new book on the war here in eastern North Carolina. So lots of interesting things. We've got more shows lined up after that, but that's just a few of the people who will be here in the next month or so. So uh, stay with us. Uh, March 26 on Saturday will be the Public History of the Civil War Conference at NC State in Raleigh. If you're in this part of the country, come on by, and uh, I'll be there. Other recent guests like Peter Carmichael will be there. Uh, Tom Mackey uh, will be on a panel with myself and uh, uh, with me and Aaron Mast from the Lincoln Cottage up in D.C. So lots of interesting things at that uh, program if you can drop by. And be sure to check out, as always, uh, impedimentsofwar.org, the helpful website uh, produced by Mark Gaffney. Uh, It gives you a chance to see the old shows in a a clearer format than the distinctive dark gray on black of of the uh, Civil War talk radio website uh, that you're you may have clicked on at this moment, and it has uh, links to the old shows, so it gets you right where you want to be quickly. It's a, a very nice site. Uh, so thanks always to Mark for doing that. Thanks to Chad for engineering today, as always. Also, if you go to impedimentsofwar.org, feel free to buy one of the books listed from any of our authors. If you buy it uh, from Amazon by going through that site, I think he gets a fraction of a penny for every book that way. Uh, and and I applaud anything that supports the website. You can also donate to the program here. The uh, uh, in years past, there have been times I thought, I don't, why do I need donations? I can just get the books from the school library. But budget cuts are everywhere, and uh, I was uh, dismayed uh, to look through the ECU catalog uh, online today and, and for certain books that ought to be in our library, new new publications on the war that aren't there. Uh, I'll buy them if I ask for them, uh, I'm told, but but I have to ask, and that seems like I'm doing their job for them. So uh, to help us resume the steady flow of books, if not to the ECU library, then right here to my office at 
Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, feel free to donate to the show, and that's what you're supporting. That and, of course, my fantasy spring break trip as well. Well, enough about that. Let us bring on uh, uh, today's guest. As I said in the introduction, and I'll, I'll say it now before bringing him on so as not to uh, uh, embarrass him uh, with, with overt praise, but today's book, Financial Fraud and Guerrilla Violence in Missouri's Civil War, 1861-1865, uh, the title reads like a dissertation. It's not the kind of thing that soars to the top of the New York Times list. But uh, but Mark Geiger, the author, has has found a new angle, uh, supported with uh, very credible evidence that, that that makes this kind of stuff fun to read again. When you you get someone who takes just a uh, looks where no one else has looked before and. Uh, turns over a stone, and and there's something there that makes sense and explains a question we've always wondered about. So, uh, enough of that. Let let us uh, let's see if he's here. Uh, Mark, are you here? Yes, I'm here. Or uh, Dr. Geiger, I should say. I don't think we've been formally introduced. Uh, I, I hope you don't mind if we go by first names. Oh, please, uh, yeah. Dr. Geiger's my father. <laughs> I, I know the feeling. And call me Jerry. Uh, Gerald is my late father. Uh, uh, we're I'm, I'm junior, but uh, Jerry is the only thing. Only my mother would call me Gerald. Uh, okay, sure. Uh, so that'll work. Um, well, Mark, it's great to have you on the show. You and I corresponded about this this book by email, and, and when I got it, and especially when I saw that uh, uh, Mark Neely, uh, my my predecessor at the Lincoln Museum in, in Fort Wayne wrote a wonderful blurb. He calls this uh, one of the finest monographs in the Civil War I've read in 25 years. Mark is not given to that kind of overstatement, uh, so I, I figured... Uh, Knocked yeah, me down when he said it. Well, I, I figured let's get you on the show without reading, without knowing anything more about the book than, than Mark Neely's recommendation in those terms. And, uh, you know, I'm, listeners, I'm here to tell you, it's really, it's quite something. But... Uh, you and I corresponded then last week, and I always ask folks what their, their day job is. Uh, you're at UCLA right now? No, I, uh, I have an honorary appointment at UCLA and another okay. one at the University of Sydney, um, but they don't that, no duties and they don't pay. So this sorry, year, at least, community. I am an independent scholar. Ah, well, that um, I, I know you inquired here if, you know, how we're doing in the department, if we have any openings. I think you wrote to uh, the previous chair, Mike Palmer, who forwarded it to me. And so by circular uh, motion, it came back around. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sorry to report, uh, as, as, as we already corresponded about, and as our listeners know from hearing me complain week after week, uh, the North Carolina state budget is, is in the toilet. And uh, not as bad as California, but, uh, but we're not able to... Uh, it's uh, a very, very terrible time. My wife is yeah. in the English department at the University of Chicago, and uh, uh, she is seeing absolutely sterling people come out of the Ph.D. program there who uh, are getting nothing, just nothing. It, it, it is really a, a grim time in, in academia, uh, history, English uh, in particular. Now, if your wife is at UC, and are you in Sydney or Los Angeles or Chicago? Uh, I'm, in, I'm in Chicago. Oh, okay. Very good. I have fond memories of Chicago. I spent a number of years there. And uh, Are you on the south side near the university? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in uh, Hyde Park, about uh, three blocks away from the campus. Very, very good. I, I recall playing pickup games of soccer on the Midway on Sunday mornings. Uh, it is not uh, a sunny day here, though, sad to say. Uh, well, that's, that, that's Chicago, though, uh, that one might expect. Now, this book 
that you've written. Uh, was this a dissertation originally? Yeah, it was originally a dissertation, um, and then I uh, crafted it into a book. The uh, final chapter in there, War in the Administrative State, is entirely new, however. I, that was going to be a, a question for the end, but I'll put it out here now, because it, it struck me as, as discontinuous from the rest of the book. Uh, not in a bad way, but uh, but different. It, uh, I, I thought maybe this would be, maybe it could have been, it, it, it just, it, the whole thing read like a dissertation, and I, again, I don't mean that in a negative way, uh, but rather in an in intellectually well-crafted way, uh, sort of came to a rounded end, and then, oh, there's another chapter. And uh, I, I'm planning on, on cutting that last chapter out and using it as a reading to show how Civil War armies were funded. Maybe we can start with that. Um, the uh, sure. Uh, the reason I added it, I uh, I felt that I really had to put Missouri, what was happening in Missouri, into the context of the rest of the country. And um, I was surprised to find that uh, what seemed like this very un unfamiliar to us uh, way of uh, raising an army, mobilizing troops, uh, was in fact being done all around the country at that time. And um, yeah. it, uh, I realized, and it became obvious once I was looking for it, that... Uh, that no government in the in the U.S. not the not the federal government or the Confederate government or any of the state governments had either the money or the administrative capacity or even the legal authority to mobilize a mass army. And well, they, um, they so passed the that down the chain. This, and um, it was done at the community level. And um, and this was how earlier wars of the U.S. had been uh, had been funded. On in fact, all the way back into the colonial era. Now, I would guess most of our listeners would recognize that story to that point, that, that the regiments were raised, companies and regiments were raised locally, men volunteered, elected their officers, uh, eventually coalesced into larger units. And, and, and we can picture you know, someone going out and making a speech and getting folks to sign up. But what, what you talk about here is, is how they paid for all this and how, how decentralized that was. Yeah, the... Uh I, I have never served in the military, but uh, I read about it. And um, the way that it's done now, I, I, evidently, you sign up someplace, and then you're taken someplace else in a training camp, and you're handed a bunch of gear. And um, But my question really was, where does the gear come from? And in 1861, and in all previous wars, the gear was paid for locally by local uh, moneyed citizens, who would arm and equip their boys, uh, their sons, brothers, or themselves. And um, then the war, and this was possible because uh, the early wars tended to be quite short and generally low-tech, so there wasn't a whole lot of stuff that you needed beyond what could be, could, could be found locally. And um, at the end of that, you would put in a uh, claim. Uh, there were various uh, avenues through which you could do so. Um, you could do it through your regiment. You could do it through the state government. You could, as a last resort, petition Congress. And um, this, is how, um, this is how these early wars were paid for. So for a country that doesn't want to have any kind of standing military establishment, which is a very much the, uh, the mentality of the early United States. This avoids all that. Um, of course, you have big problems of uh, of the quality and consistency of the um, of the um, 
arms and equipment that the troops have, uh, but nevertheless, it does it does create an army for a for a short activity. So at, at first Manassas, you've got armies on both sides that have just that have been locally paid for, locally clothed, locally armed, and the money for all that was put out by the wealthy citizens of, of wherever these troops came from. Yeah, um, that's right. And they uh, they made their own uniforms, too. Um, and by one description, uh, the uh, troops that gathered at the beginning of the war, the gathering of the various militia companies in Washington, were nothing but glittering mobs, which I think is a nice quote. Yeah. Um, most of what they had was for uh, parading on Militia Day, and that was about it. So now we've got these, these armies, and they've got this gear, but the gear wears out, the, the clothing, especially the fancy militia clothing wears out, uh, the muskets are obsolete and have to be replaced. Uh, over time, if you see a picture from 1863 or 4, the Union troops in particular look much more uniform. So, so at some point, the federal government must have taken over this responsibility. They did. Uh, both of the governments, once it became clear that, uh, that this wasn't going to be over anytime soon, uh, initially, of course, everybody thought that there would either be no fighting or they would all be done with in a couple of weeks. So all you'd need would be uh, a show of force or short-term funding. But um, when, it, when it was clear that that was not so, and as you say, the stuff wore out or got lost or broken, um, then it had to be replaced. And the only um, entities that could do so were really the armies themselves, which were in the field by that time. The home folks can't uh, send stuff to troops if they're several hundred miles away. And both sides uh, really centralized the procurement and, uh, and supply and logistics as uh, soon as they could, they realized both sides realized that uh, that uh, inadequate logistical support could cost them the war, but the North was much more successful at that for uh, several reasons. Well, in terms of centralizing, then they 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 have to centralize to to win the war. Both North and South have to do this, and you make the point that this is a a turning point in American history, not just in the, the war, but this is the first time any government on this continent has done anything on such a scale. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, there has been um, um, a good deal written in um, political science, at least, about uh, the growth of power of the centralized power in the American state, uh, most uh, famously Stephen Skoronek, uh, building a new American state. But um, the important points that he identifies come later um, in the uh, final third of the 19th century and the early 20th century. So this is quite a bit earlier. Uh, this is happening in 1861 and 1862. And uh, that 1862 is finally when the, uh, the federal government uh, takes, away, takes away the power of, uh, of uh, raising military units from the, from the states and centralizes the whole thing. So um, their their intention is uh, is actually stronger than what they're able to do for some time, but they do they do get it done by the end of the war. Well, we're going to take a break now and come back. We've we've laid some groundwork about how where money comes from early in the Civil War, and we'll talk about the events in Missouri when we return. We're talking to Mark Geiger about uh, financial fraud and guerrilla violence in Missouri. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. 
don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you are looking to get started or are currently operating a home-based business, you might be looking for answers. What are the risks? What business should I get started in? How will I market my business? How do I balance my professional life with my other life? For answers, you need to tune into The Home-Based Business Show with Helene Leontos. Each week, we'll bring you a step-by-step practical guide to starting and maintaining your home-based business. Listen every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. What's missing in your life? Do you feel like you've lost your identity? Are you trying to cope with a loss in your life? Are you trying so hard to be a people pleaser? Stop! Invest some time in Dr. Marla Sloan's program, Mind Over Matters. This program will help you find the answers to these questions and more. Dr. Marla's passion is to help people to be the best they can be. And this program does just that. Tune in to Mind Over Matters with Dr. Marla every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Mark Geiger. He's the author of Financial Fraud and Guerrilla Violence in Missouri's Civil War, 1861 to 1865. We talked in our first segment about how armies were raised in the Civil War and paid for locally. That is, is the first regiments went to war with weapons and clothing and equipment that had been bought uh, on the scene by local uh, not really investors, but uh, local uh, businessmen, bankers, people of substance, uh, put their money out there, uh, expecting later to be reimbursed by the government if things went well. Uh, Eventually, the government, uh, both North and South state and later federal governments, take over this responsibility, leading in large part to the the growth in in, uh, uh, central government power that, that continues to the present day. But uh, not just through the, the force of circumstance, but this brings us to Missouri, uh, where things happen a little differently, I guess. Uh, well, to start with, Mark, can you talk a bit about where the money is in Missouri, in particular where the banks are? Uh, I mean, money, you rob banks because that's where the money is, as, as uh, Willie Sutton allegedly said. Um, w- where are the banks in Missouri at the beginning of the war? Where's Missouri's money, and, and what do they even use for money before the Civil War? Uh, well, to answer to the last question first, um, what they use for money is uh, a small amount of specie, um, more uh, bank notes issued by uh, the, uh, these private banking corporations, which were chartered by the state, and um, to a great extent, book entry that uh, particularly in the South and West, there wasn't a lot of cash around of any kind. Um, and uh, it was common to, uh, for farmers, um, uh, country people, to run up a tab with the local merchants and then settle up uh, once their crops have sold and they have been paid themselves. But um, the money, the money um, uh, is provided really by the banks. There's almost no money around at all. Uh, which is provided by the uh, the federal government, which would be the, the small amount of specie coinage. 
And um, at the beginning of the war, the uh, state chartered banks, there were nine of them, um, with a total of about 40 branches, counting the parent branches. And these were mainly scattered along the, uh, uh, the area of, of greatest and oldest settlement, which are the counties that follow the Missouri River from St. Louis in the east over to uh, Kansas City and Independence in the west, and um, then to some extent um, a, a few counties down south towards Springfield. But that's, so that's where, that's where the money is. Outside of that, um, in uh, South Missouri in particular, there were scarcely any banks at all. And the reason the banks were uh, laid out the way they were is because that's where the settlement was, that's where the, that's where the slavery was. And the state government, which had chartered these banks, um, did so with the express and uh, stated intent of helping to bolster slavery. So these banks, so the government knew what it was doing. Uh, the governor and legislature chartered banks in certain places. Uh, the area along the Missouri River that you describe, uh, you refer to it as the, the Boone's Lick, which is a phrase I, not being from Missouri, had not come across before. What What is that region? Um, it's the region that you describe. Um, the counties along the river, pretty much in the central part of the state, the, the name comes from uh, Daniel Boone's sons, who uh, around 1810 or so came out to that region and operated a salt lick there. So it's Boone's Lick. And so they, they found they had a salt spring, and they boiled the water down and, uh, and then sold the salt. This didn't go on too long. It wasn't a very successful enterprise, but the name stuck. The, uh, since the war, the same region, the Civil War, the same region has been is largely contiguous with what is called Little Dixie um, in Missouri because of the uh, southern settlement and uh, early southern settlement and the southern sentiments of uh, the residents of the place. Now, that's that's interesting because that sort of stands out in Missouri today, which is not widely thought of as, as a southern state. But in 1861, you say uh, Missouri is very much a southern state. Yes. Yes. Um, it's, uh, its senators and congressmen voted, uh, voted consistently um, with southern states on southern, on southern issues. The, uh, the high officers of the state, almost all of them owned slaves. It's got a big burst of static there. Are you still there? I'm still here, yep. Okay. Um, and um, anyway, it was it was quite solidly aligned with the uh, slavery interests. And the earliest settlers to the state had come from uh, Kentucky and Tennessee mostly, but uh, overwhelmingly from slave states. And they made a world largely similar to the one that they had left. So um, the uh, ruling group in the state at the beginning of the war um, was called themselves the Central Clique, and this was the uh, group from which the newly elected governor in 1861, Claiborne Fox Jackson, was a staunch secessionist, and his administration all came from. And this same group, pretty much, um, had run the state from statehood in 1821 on, dominated politics, business, uh, and social life in the state. And, and this group that runs the state, the, the, these people who own land, own slaves, uh, are they're not just politically connected, but they're they're connected by uh, by marriage, by birth. They they 
they're a very tight-knit kinship group. Is that correct? Absolutely, they are. And um, these connections are, are, are so extensive that they're quite surprising to a, um, to a 21st, 20th or 21st century American that um, for some time I puzzled over these, uh, these debts, that uh, defaulted debts these people had incurred to um, raise money for these military units and just wanted to know why did this person happen to sign a note with this other person instead of with somebody else. And it was not clear. But when I started looking at family connections, um, they just went every direction. Um, I would find often that these are families that have um, that have generations-long connections with multiple marriages in each generation, that they've accompanied each other in serial migrations all the way from the, uh, from the Virginia or Maryland Tidewater and uh, made it eventually here. So these uh, kinship connections are so extensive and complex that often people have multiple kinship relations with other people. So when uh, I've seen a little bit of that here in eastern North Carolina compared to uh, Michigan where I grew up where there seemed to be approximately four surnames in all of Pitt County uh, shared widely by lots of people, uh, but, but nothing like what you describe in Missouri. Now, that means that when you have these banks uh, scattered throughout the state, uh, there's a new banking law in 1857 that gets uh, gets these banks established. The people running these banks are not professional bankers; these are uh, these are planters uh, with, with planters, southern yes. values. Planters and merchants. Yes. So they, um, the uh, it, the banking law that established the banks only dated from uh, 1857. Um, in January of 1857, the state had one chartered bank, chartered meaning currency-issuing bank, with six branches. Um, and four years later, there were nine banks with 42 branches. And such rapid expansion meant that um, they couldn't hire experienced bankers. They had to; These banks had to be officered from, from some other source. So um, the people who wound up um, clubbing in and putting up money for these for these banks and then getting the charters tended to be merchants and planters uh, who had these extensive family connections through this geographic region that I named. So these are, are not what we think of as modern banks where you deal at arm's length with a, uh, with a professional banker or in our day-to-day you deal with with a, a voice disembodied voice from India at a call center uh and never have any idea who actually is handling your money these people knew exactly who was handling their money uh and they were related to those people they did and uh that is where the money went um when the uh when the war started when fighting broke out in Missouri in uh in uh, May and June of 1861 that uh, the people who actually were were handed the money by the banks to uh, use it to uh, uh, arm and equip the rebel military units that were forming up were really only a small percentage, not only of the um, of the adult white men in the community, but a small percentage of the Southern sympathizers there. And the criterion was that they are extended family members of the bankers themselves in almost all cases. And, and this is the, the the nub of your title here: the financial fraud. In 1861, when when the war begins, uh, with the governor's connivance and support, uh, the banks of Missouri 
lend out their money to local rebel sympathizers who will use it to raise military units. They essentially give the money away. All they get in return are, are promissory notes, uh, a promise to pay, but not one that anyone takes seriously because because nobody could possibly pay back all this money. Uh, it's going to be spent on weapons. They're not going to keep it. So so how do they think they're ever going to get paid back? Well, the uh, almost all the bankers in the state are pro-Confederate, and they uh, are patriotic by their lights, and they want to support this worthy cause of getting away from this evil federal government. And they're willing to sit on these debts for as long as they reasonably can. But the, uh, the state government of Missouri, um, which they assume is going to shortly be a Confederate state government, pledges, has pledged to pay them back for uh, any expense incurred for the defense of the state, as they call it. And then behind them, the, uh, the Confederate government is standing behind, behind to underwrite Missouri. So nobody thinks that this is money that they'll ever really have to pay back. Um, and this is, uh, this is consistent with, as I said, how, uh, how funding was handled in earlier wars, too. That, um, it's handled really, it's, it's handled by debt, and, um, but really fairly short-term debt in most cases, um, which is then paid off, um, paid off after the war is over. And the plan that uh, the governor of Missouri, Governor Jackson, cooked up here uh, was almost exactly the same as the funding plan um, that uh, Governor Moore, I think it was, of Alabama, um, had um, crafted for to arm his own, to arm people in his state. So I, if I'm a local planter, I raise a company of boys, I go to the bank, write a a note, say, I promise to pay you back in 120 days, now give me $10,000, uh, which I can't possibly, you know, I don't have any cash to pay back at all. But I, I take that money, I buy the uniforms, I buy the, the muskets, and the bank holds on to my note. In theory, they could ruin me if they insist that I pay back, but I know they're not going to because they're loyal Confederates like me. And they're your brother-in-law. And they're my brother-in-law. That's the key. That, that, and the, the banker feels no, no obligation to his profession as a banker because it's not his profession. Right. These people are, are so new to this that they, they lack the kind of, um, of, I don't know, professional ethic, I guess you might say, that uh, we would expect of uh, modern managers. And it, uh, it, there's a very interesting contrast to how the Missourians, Missouri bankers behave to, uh, to how New Orleans bankers behaved. New Orleans bankers insisted on honoring their obligations to northern creditors, even even when after after war had broken out, and uh, they held on to this. They clung tenaciously to this um, this view, uh, this this decision, in spite of their own political sympathies. Um, really, adverse public opinion and pressure from the from the uh, um, Confederate government. But um, the Missourians, and by contrast, it took all the bank's money um, without regard to the uh, note holders, the shareholders, depositors, and turned all the money over to their own relatives. It, it, you know, two weeks, two or three weeks ago on the show, we had Mark White's talking about the, the Sequestration Act of 1861, uh, making almost the identical point that the uh, attorneys in Charleston, who were may have been loyal Confederates, rebelled against the idea that they had to 
violate their oaths as attorneys to their clients who might have been northerners and give up their property. Uh, they put their, their professional obligation, in that case, ahead of their Confederate patriotism, much like the New Orleans bankers did. But they had a well-developed sense of who they were as professionals, and, and clearly that's not the case in Missouri here. So this money is, is gone. Um, it won't be any problem as long as the Confederates uh, win the war. And after Wilson's Creek, things are looking pretty good for the Confederacy in Missouri. Um, but to jump ahead, and our listeners know how the story is going to end, uh, uh, the Union uh, soon gets the upper hand militarily. And by 1862, or certainly 18, early 1863, the, your brother-in-law is no longer running the local bank if you're a Confederate officer. No, um... It uh, it took some time. The uh, the Union forces got control of St. Louis very early, and um, maintained mostly main control maintained control of the Missouri River, though it was subject to um, sporadic guerrilla attacks throughout the war. Um, but uh, the countryside was was largely out of control, and parts of it remained so almost until the end of the war. But gradually they managed to regain control of these areas, and part of um, of that regaining control was purging pro-secessionists from influential positions. So that meant judgeships, uh, any county official, any county official, um, officers of corporations, officers of railroads, officers of banks. So some of these, uh, and this meant, as I say, nearly every banker in the state. So some of these people were forced uh, forced to resign. Others just fled, and uh, some of them were chased out of their banks and shot. It wasn't a very pretty picture. Um, but if in, some of them were lucky enough to keep their heads down and, uh, and survive the war, but mostly they were replaced. And they were replaced by politically reliable, meaning pro-union men, who now um, had possession of, over these gutted banks, that uh, really were nothing except a building um, and a pile of promises, um, the right to collect money from people who are either bankrupt or scattered or dead. And so the banks are, are on the brink of disaster at this point, and the only place to look for money, uh, there being no such thing as a federal bailout, is to try and go after the people who owe you money. And that's what, that's exactly what they do. So... To the horror and surprise, doubtless, of the people who signed these notes, uh, these are not compensable war claims anymore. These are private debts on which they have defaulted and which they are now responsible to pay. And these these notes, these are they're each individual uh, on a note is jointly and severally liable. So each one is liable for the entire amount of the note. And yes. That, then, uh, um, then as now, that um, if you have, if you are the holder of a defaulted note, a bounced check, say, then you have the right to go after anybody and everybody who happened to have endorsed that note, for either the whole amount or any part of it, at your option. As a practical matter, you'll go after the um, you'll go after the person who has the most money, but you've got everybody on the hook, really, and um, they. Uh, by the time these notes were being litigated, the only asset these people had left was land. Um, their, the livestock had all been stolen or commandeered. The slaves had run off. Uh, they hadn't been able to uh, plant um, 
do any agriculture for a year or two because of the level of, of, of violence. And so the only way these debts get paid is, by, uh, is through sheriff's auction of the land, which creates a land revolution in Missouri, revolution in land ownership. So the, the, the local large planter in the county in 1861 who happily signs this note, takes the money, raises the company, goes off to war, has now lost everything, not just, uh, not, not just the movable property, not the slaves have run away, but, but the land itself. Yeah, that, and, let, that is and, and therefore uh, the planters of Missouri are, are worse off than their counterparts in the Confederacy proper. That um, debts incurred at the begin because of the hyperinflation um, in uh, in the Confederacy, I think it was something like five thousand percent from the beginning of the war to the end. That any debts, monetary debts incurred in the Confederacy at the beginning of the war, of course, are meaningless uh, at the end of the war. Um, plus, um, the uh, uh, any debt any debt incurred in the service of the rebellion is uh, is illegal and uncollectible anyway. Um, after the North has won the war, so pretty much those debts are uh, are wiped out, and the planters, those those who survive, and their their sons coming back to coming back from war, the place may be burned flat, and the slaves are all gone, and they're disenfranchised and everything else, but they've got the land, and they can rebuild from that. And that plantation survives uh, in places like Alabama and Mississippi and well, the Confederacy. But it doesn't in Missouri. It all goes to auction, and the plantations get broken up. So it's well, that, so it's a very it really sends Missouri off into a completely different direction from the uh, the other slave states. We're going to take another short break and talk about another drastic effect that this has when we return in just a moment. This is Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Mark Geiger. He's the author of Financial Fraud and Guerrilla Violence in Missouri's Civil War, 1861 to 65. We've been talking about the unique situation in Missouri where, as in most other states, local uh, business leaders and landowners ponied up their uh, individual money or, or borrowed money from banks on their own, uh, uh, the strength of their own notes that they would sign uh, to raise troops at the beginning of the war with the expectation they'd be repaid at some point or reimbursed by some government at some level. That happens throughout uh, most places in the north. In the south, the debts don't matter by the end of the war because Confederate currency is worthless. I can pay you back $9,000 with what I uh, earned in an hour when, when the money's worthless. Uh, but in Missouri, it's different. The union seizes the banks that to which the, the, the locals owe these large debts and collects on them and seizes their land, has it sold at auction. And suddenly, the, the powerful intermarried uh, kinship group that controlled the state of Missouri for, for decades is suddenly landless, is suddenly powerless and without wealth. And this brings us uh, to the second half of, of your, your title, Mark, guerrilla violence. Missouri sees far more guerrilla violence than other border states. Kentucky seems similarly situated, but it's not nearly as torn. Tennessee, even eastern Tennessee, doesn't see the same level as, of intensity as Missouri. Uh, and you argue there's a connection between the, the, the land revolution and the level of, of guerrilla violence. How does that work? Um yeah there i I do argue there is a connection the um, let me first of all give a give a, a notion of the scale of what's going on here um, these were there were about forty counties that were involved in this uh, in the signing of these promissory notes which later defaulted so in about um, twenty nine hundred and thirty of these total cases this amounted to a lot of money at the time, close to uh, close to three million dollars in 1861 dollars. So um, converted, that's I say a lot of money, and um, it resulted in a lot of land being sold. Uh, about 350,000 acres of land went under the sheriff's hammer as a result of this in these 40 in these 40 counties, and uh, and these are people that. Um, had had quite a bit. These were people who were people of substance in their communities. They, their young men were raised to a sense of uh, their own uh, importance and place in the world. And all of a sudden, um, here is uh, here they are being they're being dispossessed. Even though um, it was ultimately their own fault, I doubt they I doubt they saw it that way. They just saw it as just flat out injustice. I'm sure. And it's a it's a commonsensical solution, really, that if you go yanking people's property away from them, um, hundreds or thousands of people, a certain number of them are going to go berserk and start shooting. And um, that's pretty much what happened. That um, what I was able to find in the book was that um, the counties where this had happened had a much higher rate of much higher incidence of guerrilla violence and the guerrillas who could specifically be identified as uh, having come from those counties before the war were disproportionately members of these dispossessed families so there was more guerrilla violence in Missouri because there were more guerrillas and there were more guerrillas there because there was this additional grievance in Missouri 
that uh, was not present in um, um, Kentucky or eastern Tennessee or western North Carolina or the other frontline states between the two hostile sections that saw guerrilla violence for the usual reasons, uh, mixed population, uh, military occupation, and then clashes with those troops, um, um, revenge and reprisal. And all that happened in Missouri, too, but then there was this other thing on top of it. Well, and, and you point out that among the guerrillas in Missouri, uh, you get a, an unusually large percentage of them who are these young men of wealth and, and, and standing as they grew up. They're not the desperados from, from the lower level of society who might have been lawless anyway. Uh, you do see some of those in southern Missouri, but you see this a large number of elite guerrillas, as it were. Yeah, this was a this was a point that was uh, that was raised earlier in a, a very well known article by Don Bowen, 1977, I think it was, relative deprivation hypothesis applied to the guerrilla violence in western Missouri. Um, the the first take on guerrillas in Missouri was that um, looking these people up in the manuscript census, uh, they didn't own any property, and so it's just assumed, ergo, it follows they're poor. Therefore, from the bottom of society and so forth. Um, but Bowen um, noticed that uh, as young as these as these kids, many of them were, they didn't own any property. Naturally, uh, the youngest gorilla I found was nine, and um, but their families uh, would own property. So that's really the question: is how much what the household property is. And he found a surprisingly high level of uh, of household property among the guerrillas, as as did I. So, let me interrupt with a sort of question about how you found a lot of this stuff. Um, you've not always been a historian. You you had another career at some point. Yeah, I uh, I came to this pretty late in life and um, got the got a PhD in two thousand six. Before that, I was a finance and accounting type. I worked in um, financial services for uh, for most of my previous career, um, including auditing. And um, I, the reason I noticed this stuff, the evidentiary um, uh, traces of what had happened here, was because I once managed an audit department that was responsible for investigating fraud. And I saw a pattern in these court records where there shouldn't have been a pattern. So my my whole tuning is to following the money, and that's what I did. And, and that again, no historian has really done this in the same way to uh, uh, to follow the money to see that these people uh, again invested is not really the word, but these people uh, staked their fortunes uh, on a Confederate victory, and then lost everything. And then uh, a disproportionate number of them uh, turned to violence, turned to uh, ha- having nothing else to lose in life at this point. These, these young men of, of, of status turned to, to, to becoming the next Jesse James. Yeah, correct. The, uh, the effects are certainly well known. The uh, level of guerrilla violence was, was in Missouri was just far away and above anywhere, anywhere else. Went on for longer, involved more people. Um, and there's other puzzles about the about the Civil War in Missouri as well. One, there's uh, there's very little of a uh, the remains of a planter class in evidence in Missouri, as you will find still quite very much so in evidence in say Kentucky, which also didn't secede. 
Um, and you'll, but you'll find there the, um, the two-century farms and raising blooded stock and tobacco culture and uh, distinguished genealogies and the whole bit. Um, in Missouri, what you'll find is the houses. The houses are there, but the people are not. The people are gone. So where did they go? That's another curiosity of Missouri. The South is definitely present in Missouri, but what you don't have in Missouri is this, is this upper-class presence or anyway, nearly, not nearly as much of it. Um, and um, thirdly, too, the uh, the plantation system itself didn't survive in Missouri as it did uh, as it did in the states farther south. Missouri is the only one of the uh, former slave states that pretty much distanced itself from the south after the war and realigned itself with the north. None of the others did that. And um, and these are all. The guerrilla violence, of course, is kind of the most flamboyant question, but uh, but, but the others are, are are kind of puzzles of Missouri's situation as well. So that's that's certainly all known. But uh, this is this is why. Well, it's really intriguing that Kentucky, in contrast, you know, has been described as a posthumous member of the Confederacy. You know, seceding after 1865 in spirit, uh, when it was a Union state during the war. Whereas Missouri uh, goes the opposite direction and, and, and is is not considered southern, uh, widely considered southern today. Uh, it doesn't vote uh, any particular way. I mean, it's a swing state. It, it can be red or blue. It was not part of the solid south. Uh, it, it is culturally and politically not part of the ex-Confederacy. Uh, and... Uh, you know, it, it's never really been explained why that was so, and your, your hypothesis is really uh, uh, a fascinating one, that this, this land pattern, this dispossession of an entire class of leadership because they gambled wrong in 1861, uh, you know, make, makes a lot of sense. The, it, Missouri has, uh, if, if it has any Civil War tradition, it is that of the guerrillas. You point out that they, they flourish in popular culture today. Um, very yeah, very much so. Um, as we uh, as we see in the movies that uh, keep coming out, um, and it's uh, it's something which has survived in in local memory too. Uh, my own family, one one part of it goes back in Missouri to the 1840s, and uh, I have um, four or five stories that have been handed down to me within my own family of when the bushwhackers came. And uh, I know other families, much the same families, old families that have been around a long time. They have similar stories. Were you able so it's a to kind of a local variation them? of the, the noble lost cause? Uh, it's the noble gorilla. Uh, did you pursue any of those particular stories to see what grain of truth they had? Um, it's it's hard to do that. Well, well yeah, I, I did. I did actually look up. Um, uh, I looked up the the. Um, the stories that I that I know from my own family, and they actually they actually did happen. Um, the noble gorilla stories um, sometimes don't work out quite that way. Um, there, there is uh, one example that I cite in the book of a uh, of a prosperous young farmer owned uh, owned I think six slaves or so in Lafayette County in uh, at the beginning of the war, um, signed several promissory notes and went off to fight with the Southern Army. And what happened uh, to everybody else happened to him as well. His property was condemned, sold at auction, and yanked out from under him. And he joined the guerrillas. And 
was eventually shot by a Union patrol, um, as and noted in their reports, as a notorious guerrilla. Um, and other reports that he had been at Lawrence, Kansas, the worst civilian massacre of the uh, of the war, and bragged of killing over a dozen men there. So it's what happened. This is what happened to a, a formerly solid citizen. The family uh, version of that is uh, that northern troops came and murdered him because he wouldn't tell them where his fortune was hidden. And um, then they freed his slaves like, over their objections. So they, uh, the family version preserves the, the outlines of the story, namely that northern forces killed James Waller and took his property. But what they omit um, is the reason why those forces came or that he responded by joining the guerrillas. Right. That's been right. left out entirely. Well, well, this, um, you know, we, many weeks on the show we have people who, who love history, and they, they may be doctors or, or bankers, uh, and they've written a book uh, out of their, their passion for the past, uh, and their research is impeccable, but it is just a story of one thing after another. There's no unifying uh, theme. There's no thesis. There's no argument. Uh, so the pleasure of reading a, a book like this that takes an existing uh, uh, historical question, formulates a thesis, uh, a hypothesis to, to try to answer it, applies evidence, uh, uh, in this case evidence people have not looked at much, the court records of, of Missouri and bank records, and comes to a, a fresh conclusion. It was just uh, a real delight to read this book, and I, I recommend it highly to our listeners. Uh, this is what historians do when they're, they're, they're on their game. Financial Fraud and Guerrilla Violence in Missouri Civil War by Mark W. Geiger. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, and I'm, I'm delighted that you enjoyed the book. I, I, I certainly did, and listeners, you will too. Listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com.